This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all sorts here on this show. And this next one is a story about a bridge in Durham, North Carolina, that has captured the world's attention on YouTube. Today, Jesse brings us the story of the 11-foot, 8-inch high bridge. The 11-foot-8 bridge is a railroad trestle in Durham, North Carolina that people keep running into with their big trucks, buses, and RVs. Sometimes entire roofs of moving vans are removed, peeled and rolling back like a tin can. Big rigs are stuck under the thing. And despite many large warning signs and flashing lights, Warning drivers who dare to pass under its 11-foot-8 clearance. People just keep running into it. One day, Jurgen Hen started recording. The bridge is right outside my office. I started working in that building in 2002, and uh, every time a truck hits the bridge, we kind of notice because it's loud, usually. <laughs> and so over, over the years, and... You know, every, every few weeks we'd walk out there and check on the driver and, and kind of survey the mayhem. The trestle is over 100 years old and at the time it was built there were no standards for minimum clearance. On average, about once a month, the truck runs into the damn thing. In 2008, I was setting up a home security system and with, a, with you know, wireless cameras and decided that it would be kind of interesting to set up one of those cameras at the office to start filming the traffic and maybe catch one or two of these truck crashes to see what that actually looks like. I've never actually seen it happen in real life. As it happened, just a couple of weeks after I set up the camera, I caught the first crash and decided to put it on YouTube It became pretty popular right away, so clearly there was an interest for that kind of footage, so I kept recording. There was not much overhead, really. The North Carolina Railroad Company owns the trestle, but lifting it would cost millions of dollars, so they installed a crash beam. It reduces the impact of trucks hitting the trestle by slicing open the vehicle like a 46 Ford cutting through a DeLorean. They call it the can opener. The road can't be lowered because of sewer lines underneath, and there are warning signs for three blocks leading up to it. There's even a sensor that can detect a truck that won't fit. If your rig is too tall, it'll trigger a sequence of massive flashing lights that specifically tell the driver to exit. But still, people keep hitting it. Jurgen has hundreds of videos of people crashing into this thing and millions of views on YouTube. He even collects parts of the crash debris and sells it back to his fans. I credit my wife for that idea. I mean, I just clean up a little bit when we go down there, kind of pick up the pieces. I notice that they're kind of cool looking. You know, sometimes they're bent in spirals or, or other interesting shapes. So I started keeping the, the, the more interesting looking pieces in my office. And over the years, well, one box after another, I eventually hauled some of those boxes home. <laughs> and my wife said, honey, 
Um, let's do something with these boxes of truck pieces. How about I try to sell them? And I'm like, sure, honey, you try to sell them. Well, yeah, he was actually onto something and um, you know, took some nice pictures, named the pieces, and uh, started our online store where we sell t-shirts and crash art. That was that, that moniker was also right. <laughs> to call it crash art. Lucrative is probably not the word that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> I'm not about to quit my day job over this for sure. I, I would call it a self-sustaining hobby. Make enough money off the t-shirt sales and, and crash art. And I have a Patreon page now too to help sort of sustain the whole thing. Every couple years or so, get new cameras so I can capture good, good high-quality footage. Now, for the record, the actual clearance height of the 11-foot-8 bridge is 11-foot-10.8, which technically gives it 2.8 inches more than advertised. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And thanks for that story, Jesse. And people do everything in this country. They have all kinds of hobbies. Some people bowl. Some people play poker. Some people golf, knit. This guy, crash art. And as he said it, it's a self-sustaining hobby. And boy, that's better than most. Most of us have to pay for our hobbies. By the way, you can go to YouTube, and there's a video with somewhere over 7 million views of the ultimate montage of all the crashes that this gentleman has filmed over the years with his little homespun rigged camera that he just decided would capture all the crashes he'd never seen. Now he gets to see it. Now we all get to see it. And by the way, if you have quirky stories like this, passions, hobbies, or know people who do, send them our way. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. I'm trying to run down a guy who has a toaster museum. I'd seen an article about it somewhere. And if anybody knows, the wisdom of the crowds is great. I'd seen or read this story about a guy who'd collected toasters from the beginning of time and has turned his home and several others into this ultimate toaster museum. And that's right, toaster, T-O-A-S-T-E-R. And he's walking through it and talking about every single kind of toaster, the one piece of toast toaster, then the two piece of toast toaster, the ones that fold, the one that hold four. And he was just waxing poetic. And I can just imagine what his wife thinks of that toaster museum. Is it's tens of thousands of dollars in time, but if it keeps them off the streets, well, you know, what's the problem? Your hobbies, send them our way. A friend, somebody in town, ouramericannetwork.org. The story, the 11-foot, 8-inch bridge, actually, the 11-foot, 10-inch bridge, here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, our Faith in Action series, where we hear stories about how people of faith live it out in the public square, from adoption to coaching, and all of the other beautiful things that can be inspired by faith. And Alex Cortez brings us this next feature. In 1950, Jack Hurston's mother Mary and stepfather Hugo decided to lease a cavern. Yes, apparently, you can do that. We had no air conditioning, of course. And so Hugo said, ha, we're going to do underground square dancing. Publicity of saying you could square dance underground in 58 degree temperature. Nobody had ever done that. I mean, sweating and square dancing went together. We made news all over everyone. However, their cave tours weren't quite a big hit with the pregnant folks and older crowd, climbing down 50 stories and then back up 50 stories to get out. So they built a frontier town attraction around it that everyone could enjoy, and Jack had to build it with his mother as his supervisor. We were building the railroad track, and Mary came down and said, Jack, what are you going to do about that big dogwood tree? And I said, well, Mary, the only place it can go is right through that dogwood. And she said, Jack, that dogwood goes and so do you. (laughs) (laughs) She had a way of putting words (laughs) as where you could really understand them. So I had no choice and I took the dogwood and she fired me. And I got fired a second time. <laughs> but it was worth it. In 1960, four times more people came to see their frontier town than had ever seen the cave. And they named it Silver Dollar City, which Jack didn't like. That's an understatement, Alex. I hated the name. <laughs> it belonged in Nevada and needed a casino or two. It was just awful. But Jack's humble enough to admit that he was wrong. What's now Silver Dollar City Amusement Park has more than 2 million visitors per year. In the Missouri town that it's in, they helped make a household name, Branson. And Jack and his brother Pete have built the largest private family entertainment company in America with Dollywood, Stone Mountain Resort, and the Harlem Globetrotters among their 23 properties. And their first property of Silver Dollar City had a frontier church called Wilderness Church from the very beginning. We were conducting services in the Wilderness Church, neither one of us believers, when we would invite pastors to come out, but occasionally they would forget. So Pete and I would go around behind the church and we would flip a coin. And whoever lost got to do the sermon. <laughs> and whoever won led the singing. Neither one of us believers. It was sad. I mean, it was, it was pitiful. It was always... Um, Let's see, I saw Billy Graham speak. What did he speak on again? <laughs> trying to, trying to, trying to, trying to, 
emulate Billy Graham this must be good. It was awful. <laughs> Just oh gracious. People were so kind to us. We didn't deserve it. Married a Christian girl who was so influential because we had three boys and every Sunday morning she'd say, well, Jack, you might as well come go with us to the church. And I didn't go and she never put me down or argued with me or anything. She just invited me every Sunday. Very strong witness. Man, that was powerful. Met a traveling hardware salesman, John Shanahan, and John was on the road all week, but on the weekends, instead of picking up golf clubs, he'd pick up his Bible. And I was on his list. And every Saturday, he'd run me down. I thought, oh, here comes John again. Because <laughs> I, I was busy building a business and I was working seven days a week. And John was a huge interruption to my work schedule. But John was every Saturday for two years. I was hard stubborn. I said, John, I got to have proof. This is an emotional deal, this faith. So he brought me a book called Those Troublesome Miracles. And I wish I had a copy today, but it just took the 35 miracles of the New Testament and explained them one after another after another. And as a staunch, I got to have proof guy, it became much easier to believe than to try to figure out how to explain away 35. And, and so I owe my faith to the Holy Spirit and John Shanahan and my wife, for which I'm really, really grateful. And by coincidence or providence, Jack's brother Pete also came to faith completely separately within the same 30-day period. Shortly after both of us came to faith, we sat behind the Wilderness Church on a log and we had our first board meeting, pun intended, and it was the most meaningful time in our careers because it was a time for us to stop and reflect on what did we really, as new believers, what did we really want Silver Dollar City to be about? And so the culture that evolved really started on that log behind the Wilderness Church. Our vision statement is we best serve the Lord when we bring families together. And we're just blessed to be in a business where that's easy because people want to escape all the problems that they're facing. And so we give them a day or so of a chance just to have an enjoyable time together. And then our mission statement is we create memories worth repeating. And one day I'm at the employee's lounge, which I love because presidents and street sweepers all eat together. And a guy about 55 or 60 came in. He's working the parking lot. And he's caught between the sun and the black asphalt, so he's hot. Sweat dripping off his nose. And he gets right up in my face, puts his finger in my nose, and he says, Jack, I want to tell you about a memory not worth repeating. And I thought, it's working. You know, people get it with 100% accuracy. They go, oh gosh, no, that's not. But that is. Luke Stanley was six foot six and about that thick. 
and he worked 40 years in the paving business between the sun and black hot oil. And when he retired, he said, I always wanted to work at Silver Dollar City. I said, great. What would you like to do? He said, I want to be a street sweeper. I said, great. As long as you feel free to do anything else you want to do. So he would jig dance on the square. But one of those things that he did was he, with his own money, every year would buy 500 silver dollars. And he would wait until he saw a child, in this case, a handicapped three-year-old kid in a, in a wheelchair. And, hmm, <laughs> I'm, making my way to the hospitality house and I see this big, tall, lanky guy on his knees in front of his wheelchair and he's giving that child a sofa up for and telling her how special she is. I said afterwards, Luke, what are you doing? He said, oh shucks, he said, that's just something that I get to do. I said, where'd you get the dollars? He said, well, I, I'd buy them. I said, you bought your last $4. We will furnish them from now on. We don't ever preach. We don't ever say, you got to go to Wilderness Church on Sunday. Just live it. Just live it. And Jack Hershen and his people are living it. And we best serve the Lord when we bring families together. And it's not a bad logo for people of faith and we love to talk about people of faith here on this show because there are so many people of faith in this country and have been reduced to sort of single-issue politics. And my goodness, people of faith in this country are so much more than that and disagree about many things political, but we come to our faith because we want to give and we want to love, and it serves a role in our lives. And my goodness, when we continue with this story, Jack Hershens, you're going to find out just how much faith means to this family. Jack Hershen's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Jack Hershen, co-founder of Hershen Family Entertainment, which is the largest family-owned entertainment company in America with Dollywood, Stone Mountain Resort, the Harlem Globetrotters, and Silver Dollar City in Branson among their 23 properties in six states. And now we return to Jack's story of bringing families closer together through attractions that are safe and fun for families, and they're harder, folks, and harder to find. And by the way, that's from Dollywood to Branson. Let's return to Jack speaking about his biological father. He was an alcoholic, never held a job, was totally dependent upon his dad. He and my mother were divorced when I was two. I still have the memory as a two-year-old running away from home. It's just 
terrifying as a young person to hear your parents yelling. Just terrifying. That's what I was running from. I had just been given red ball jet tennis shoes. And as long as I had those tennis shoes, I thought I would be fine. And, and, but he was warm. He would come to my wrestling matches when my mom and my stepdad never did. So we had a relationship, but the gift that he gave me was the fear of failure. At eight years old, I was out mowing lawns and proving to myself that I could survive and raise a family and provide. I fell trapped to the lie that it wasn't the quantity of time you spent with your wife and children, it was the quality of time. So I was our boy's Sunday school teacher, I was their scoutmaster, I took them caving, I took them canoeing, but I didn't give them quantity of time. After church, I'd go back to work. <laughs> and so, so I was six and a half days every week. Uh, my wife cried on the way back from a vacation in Colorado because she assumed we would never have another vacation. <laughs> We'd been married about 12 years before I took a vacation. I was a real dyed-in-the-wool workaholic and I deeply regret that. I was very out of balance. And I get to mentor six guys now and all six of them are now coming into a time where they've got balance in their life between their spiritual life, their family life, and their business. And everything I get to do is fun. It's, Mentoring is not a one-way street where one sacrifices and the other benefits. Both sides benefit tremendously. It just It's a joy to watch these men and so much more fulfilled because they discovered balance that I, I did not. But, but God, you can use these things. You know, I don't know that I could have been as helpful to young men had I not made that mistake. And so it's just wonderful how we can learn from the good things in our life and we can even learn even more from mistakes we made. You know, I don't regret it from that standpoint, but interesting and slightly off track, I was reading somewhere a man who interviewed people on their deathbeds. And the question was, what's your biggest regret? Number one was I didn't spend enough time with my family. Number two was I didn't take enough risk. I thought, wow, you know, isn't in, in our faith walk, in our business, I did. I think of that every time I go by a poor person, I pick them up now and ask them, to tell me about themselves. But for years, that was too risky to me. I would never think to do it. I just found that helpful to realize that not enough time with my family and I didn't take enough risk. Somewhere 
it got in my head that God made us all equal and God wanted us to treat each other like we're equal. So when I get in a fancy car, I just feel uncomfortable because it sends a message that I don't want to send. Sam Walton was a hero of mine, drove an old truck, and I just love that. It just feels right to not put up a barrier between myself and other people and other opportunities to serve people. So it just seems like a natural thing. We all live together. We had a CEO, Joel Manby, write a book called Love Works, and he took 1 Corinthians 13 and he applied it to business. And every speech I got a chance to hear him speak, he always would start with the same thing. He said, by a show of hands, how many of you all feel overly appreciated? And of course, everybody does exactly what you do, just laugh. And the point that he's making is, you cannot err on the side of appreciating. You can't overdo appreciation. We're so hungry for it, and the affirmation we get from it empowers us to do things we never thought we could do. It's just huge gift that you can give people. And one of the ways that Jack's been giving that gift is writing surprise letters of appreciation to people every day. I can't remember where the idea came from, but I've been doing it for 50, 60 years. It just seemed like it was the right thing to do. And I probably wrote notes for five years before I started seeing the concrete evidence that what I was doing with those little takes 90 seconds to write notes, uh, the good that they were doing inside of other people's lives. And then to go to an employee's home and see it framed Oh my gosh, uh, the power of, of encouragement. Uh, <laughs> I still, today, I start every day out writing two or three notes. Now, the thing that makes this a little harder is it's got to be legit and it's got to be specific. If it's general, you did a great job, phony as can be. And we, got a, we all got a phony filter. <laughs> we can see phony a mile away. So it has to be honest, true, and it has to be specific. So it takes a little thought to be sure that you do it right. We believe that we need to have Christians and non-Christians alike working in the organization. We never wanted to have people think that you had to be a Christian to work inside our organization. We work hard to make sure people know that that's not a criteria for being hired. And this has happened a number of times, and the words are almost always exactly alike. A little embarrassed, say, you know, I'm not a believer, but I'd a whole lot rather work in a Christian culture than a secular one. But then that gives us an opportunity to hopefully tastefully witness to that person. And you've been listening to Jack Hershen, co-founder of Hershen Family Entertainment.
the largest family-owned entertainment company in America, with Dollywood Stone Mountain Resort, the Harlem Globetrotters, and Silver Dollar City in Branson, among their 23 properties in six states. As always, great work by Alex on this, getting out into the field. And these are the kind of stories that make people think, if you're not a person of faith, my goodness, this is what it really sounds like, folks. Jack Hershen's story. So many people's stories here in America. Our Faith in Action series continues here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to talk about everything. Well, everything except the following. Uh, we don't do Republicanese or Democraties. Uh, we don't do hard right, hard left. We don't do politics. We don't do opinion. So if you want that or news, well, you're on the wrong dial. I'm, I urge you to switch. Um, but if you're looking for stories, if you're looking for something interesting, something you care about, something you didn't know about but you're going to know about, um, stick around. I think you'll like what you're about to hear. We do everything, the arts uh, and sports. We love talking about sports. And today we're going to talk about the very first Super Bowl. And by the way, I'm old enough to remember it. And I was a big sports fan. My dad was. My whole family was. And at the time of this first, very first Super Bowl, and we're celebrating the 50th uh, coming up in, uh, in not too long. And Americans love the Super Bowl. And I know there are some folks like Malcolm Gladwell who want to see football go away. And there are academics and all kinds of experts who think this is really bad and unhealthy use of our time. Um, but we don't think so here. And so here with our version of this day in history, because on this day in history, the very first Super Bowl was played, Greg Hengler is recorded with his pal, Mr. Anonymous, the following piece. On this day in 1967, Americans huddled around their televisions for what has now been called the very first Super Bowl. I say now because this first best of contest between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Green Bay Packers had not yet been labeled the Super Bowl but was simply called the World Championship Game. Packers quarterback Bart Starr earned the game's MVP, but the Packers' greatest asset was on the sideline, head coach Vince Lombardi. In the mid-1960s, the intense competition for players and fans between the National Football League, NFL, and the upstart American Football League, AFL, led to talks of a possible merger. It was decided that the winners of each league's championship would meet each year in a single game to determine the world champion of football. Since postseason college games were known as bowl games, AFL founder Lamar Hunt suggested that the new pro championship be called the Super Bowl. 
The term was officially introduced in 1969, along with Roman numerals to designate the individual games. In 1970, the NFL and AFL merged into one league with two conferences, each with 13 teams. Here's a look at that first championship game. On January 15, 1967, on a bright, clear day in the Los Angeles Coliseum, the big question which had troubled the football world for seven years was answered. For the first time, the Green Bay Packers, champions of the National Football League, played the Kansas City Chiefs, the best team in the American Football League. The game was the first concrete evidence of the merger of the two leagues, and it was played for the highest stakes ever, $15,000 per man for the winning players. The Super Bowl was seen by the largest sports audience in the history of television. 65 million people watching the broadcast on two networks. Thousands of people here in the stands, and there are millions of people on television, and everyone looking, and all with speculation, to see what kind of a game the Green Bay Packers are going to play today. Right? Right. right? I want you to be proud of your profession. It's a great profession. You be proud of this game, and you can do a great deal for football today. Great deal for all the players and the league and everything else. Go out there and play this ball game like I know you can play it. Lombardi's pregame attempts to inspire his team had achieved the opposite effect. He made us so cautious that in the first half, we literally played, making sure we didn't make a mistake. When you're concerned and you're so intimidated by the situation, then sometimes it takes away the, the real heart of what you do. We were tight, and anybody would have been tight in that situation. But also, Kansas City was really good. I mean, they had some great, great football players. In the early going, we didn't protect the passer well. Bart got hit. He got hit by my man, I know that. Starr wasn't the only Packer on the turf. When Boyd Dowler re-injured his shoulder, his sleep-deprived and hungover replacement was sent in. Now we have our first sub of the game. Dowler is going out, and Max McGee now is coming in as flanker. Well, when Boyd goes down, I said, "Uh uh-oh. Well, this is the very thing I was concerned about. And the flip side of that, though, based on his ability to be a clutch performer when called upon, I just had a gut feeling that Max would be ready, and he was. He steps in, and he plays like gangbusters. Dale to the right, McGee to the left, star dropping straight back, hit as he throws, has the ball, and it's McGee, touchdown! And the old veteran scores the first touchdown of the Super Bowl game. Despite McGee's unexpected heroics, the Chiefs kept the game close. The Packers had seen enough. In the third quarter, Lombardi turned the dogs loose on defense. The Chiefs were held scoreless for the rest of Super Bowl I, and Max McGee couldn't be stopped. With a mixture of satisfaction and relief, the now-relaxed Packer bench could enjoy their Super Bowl win along with their unflappable teammate. What a day! It's the stuff of legend, and it should be. 
and Bart got the most valuable player because he earned it, but they probably should have split it and had co-MVPs because Max had that great a game. In this superb spectacle of a sport, even the losers can find some satisfaction. Back to cornfields, huh? On another day in another year, it will surely be the turn of the AFL. But this spectacle of a sport belonged to Green Bay. Even though it is a national tournament, the award was initially inscribed with the words World Professional Football Championship. It was officially renamed in 1970 in memory of Vince Lombardi after his death from cancer to commemorate his leading the Green Bay Packers to victories in the first two Super Bowls. After the game was over, a reporter asked Vince Lombardi if he thought Kansas City was a good team. Lombardi responded that he did not think Kansas City was good enough to play in the NFL, comparing them to NFL championship game loser Dallas. The first Super Bowl is the only one to have been simulcast in the United States by two networks. NBC had the rights to nationally televised AFL games, while CBS held the rights to broadcast NFL games. Both networks were allowed to televise the game. The first Super Bowl's halftime entertainment consisted of college bands from the University of Arizona and the University of Michigan. On average, 80 to 90 million people are tuned into the Super Bowl at any given moment, while some 130 to 140 million watch at least some part of the game. The last five Super Bowls have been the five most watched telecasts in U.S. television history. Prior to that, the most watched telecast was the MASH finale in February 1983, with 106 million viewers. And nine of the ten most watched U.S. television programs in history were Super Bowls. Finally, no Super Bowl has ever gone into overtime. The first Super Bowl, this day in history. Great job on that piece, Greg, and I remember that game, and I remember what a joke people thought the AFL was. Oh, the AFL, what a waste. This is so silly. There's the NFL, that's real football, and there's the AFL, how goofy. And, of course, by Super Bowl three, everything changed. That was the then-Baltimore Colts and Johnny Unitas against this upstart Joe Namath with his handlebar mustache and his white shoes, Broadway Joe, and the unbeatable Colts, big point favorites, get beat 16 to 7. 16 to 7 by the AFL. And that's when it became official. There was parody, and no one ever joked about the AFL again. The upstarts taking it to the old, old, original National Football League. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We love sports, we love music. You're hearing plenty tonight and always will on all subjects that we care about. Life, love, faith, health, law, and again, our American network has everything you need. Go on there. I just, for the first time, went to my own website to listen to a segment because I just had to listen to what the Al Pacino hour actually sounded like. A friend of mine had heard it said, you got to listen to that. It was really good. And uh, so I did. And it really was because you're listening to Al Pacino for the hour talking about, well, somebody knows a lot about Al Pacino. 
Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we'll be back with more after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And our next story comes from Bill Austin, the founder of Starkey, the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America. And we've previously told you Bill's life story and how this billionaire spends half of his time personally fitting hearing aids on the poor across the globe. But today, Bill brings us a story of American innovation and the extraordinary capabilities of their hearing aid called Livio AI. A lot of research came out that said, hey, people who have hearing loss, it so happens, are way more likely to have cognitive decline if the hearing loss is untreated. And then there's more and more research, and they're finding out that it's associated with Alzheimer's senility, etc. And the people that had hearing loss, even mild hearing loss, were three times more likely to fall. And when they get older, they'd fall, break a hip, and you're dead within a year, typically. And so we said, wow, we can help in those areas. And so we decided we would create a score to measure brain health. And we found out there was a big university study that went on for years of what would help people live longer and they decided stop smoking, stop drinking, and that's what they thought it was gonna be. They really thought that was gonna be, and I I would have too, I thought that's what it would be. Stop smoking, stop drinking, exercise more, eat better, and they had the list. And down the list comes social interaction. They found out that that was number one, that people who were engaged with their family and communicating socially active mentally engaged, communicating with close friends, family, and then an outside circle that you'd engage with in your community, whoever that is, that those people would live longer. And it had more effect on longevity than anything else. It was the greatest impactor on longevity. And so once we realized that, we said, hey, we wanna measure social engagement. So our devices can tell the difference between you listening to TV and talking to someone. And you get more points for talking to someone. 
if you're going to listen to something, if you listen to music, you get more points than listening to the TV because the music stimulates more of the brain. It's better for your brain health. So we're measuring what's going up the pipe to the brain and scoring that. And so we have a Thrive score of 100 points that we want to get on the mental side, on the brain side, because the brain runs the body and we want to keep the brain healthy and that'll keep you alive longer. And on the other side, we know you needed the exercises, you needed the movement. So on the physical side, we measure how often are you moving? Are you sitting? Not just are you taking 10,000 steps a day, but it's measuring you all day long saying, hey, you've been sitting too long. You gotta move every hour. And you gotta move not just 10,000 slow steps, but you have to have at least 30 minutes of more brisk walking. And so it's measuring the acceleration, how much you're doing, how you're doing it, and so you have a, a physical score that you get up to 100 points on. And we assess those two things. So the object is to get 200 points in a day, 100 on the mental side and 100 on the physical side. And we set up a whole measurement system with sensors to measure that process. And we find, incredibly, that it's more effective than we thought it would be. Not only is it incredibly accurate, it's, it's like light years more accurate than Apple watches or Fitbits. It, it, you can't cheat on it and it's really accurate. You know, you can sit and swing your arm and get steps on an Apple watch, you can get, or Fitbit, you can give your Fitbit to some kid that's gonna go out and run track or something. Uh, you know, you can, you can cheat and get points, but with these things, you can't cheat on them. They're made for you, not anyone else. And there's two of them and they're cross-checking each other. So they have to be in agreement. It's, it's quite accurate. So when I say this is exciting, Imagine this. Just imagine this. I have so many people, so many people that said, New Year's resolutions, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to get healthier. You know, a week or two later, it's out the door and they never do it. We fit these people with these Livios and it's incredible how much attention they pay. They're looking at their phones and checking their scores all the time, and they're trying to not get a low score. They're trying to get their score up. My wife does it all the time. I've been able to beat my wife one day. <laughs> it's just amazing to me how effective it has become. And you've been listening to Bill Austin, founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, and about how his innovation, his technology, his product is changing people's lives. And it's not shocking to us, given all the time we've spent with the Stetson family office and our Better Lives at Lower Cost series, that these things matter in our lives. Social interaction matters. So does regular exercise and brisk exercise. But my goodness, how that mind processes well, interactions with friends and families, I think it's inestimable, and now we can prove it scientifically. And again, just another example of how innovation and technology, you think you're working on hearing aids, 
the next thing you know, you're getting people to live better and healthier lives and husbands and wives to compete to see who gets a higher score on their brain health and their heart health. Because these are the two things that make for better and healthier and longer lives. And as always, our Stetson family office pieces feature stuff like this. And we're doing it here with Bill Austin, again, the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, and his work on hearing aids at starkey.com. You can find out more about Livio AI is the product. And when we come back, more of Bill Austin's story here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder Bill Austin on the awesome innovations they're working on. Let's continue with the story. We're releasing fall detection that will, it knows because there's two accelerometers and gyroscopes, one on each side of the head. And they can tell whether you've sat down quickly or you've fallen down. And you can't trick it. If you try to act like you're going to fall on the bed, it knows. I mean, somehow it knows. It, it, by the acceleration and, and, and what's happening, it will tell if you've fallen. You can ask it and it will call three sources for help for you. If you don't respond within six seconds saying, I don't need help. If you have an elderly parent living alone or something, this is a great thing. We just had our lunchroom manager. His father lived in Ohio. He fell in his apartment. So he called and he didn't get an answer. He didn't think a lot about it. He called again and didn't get an answer. After a couple days, he's getting really worried. He called again, he finally called the apartment manager the apartment manager went and knocked on the door, no answer. He called the police, they broke in, and they found that his father was down on the floor dead. He hadn't been able to reach his phone, which was up on a shelf, and he died on the floor. Now, he may have died anyway, or he may not have, because when he fell, Kevin's phone could have rang it would have rang and said, your father needs help, and he could have got someone there, or it could have been sent to someone else there, either to an emergency service or the apartment manager, whoever he knew. You can identify three people you wanted to notify, and it'll notify. So we think this is a great thing for people to have. As people get older and their bones get more brittle, they could have a stroke. And even if they didn't break anything, if you get help quickly, your chances of a better recovery are much, much better than if you lay there without help. So this is part of our help people be healthier, stay alive, and perform the task better. And the brain assistant is the perform the task better. So as we release the early brain assistant 
for instance, we will have Google Assist inside. So if someone asks you, like, who hit the most home runs in American baseball? You can say, let's see, who hit the most home runs in American baseball? It'll tell you in your ear and you can answer and act really smart. If it's in the internet, we can put it in your ear. Just like that. And so we're not gonna replace someone's brain, but we're going to help people use their potential better by doing more and more assist work. This assist will be augmented by Siri and all the other ones. But then there are other things that we're doing, the sleep assist. Through binaural beats and a series of harmonics, we can know what state your brain was in and we will be able to move brain state. Delta state for deep sleep, which we need for the body to self-repair. Otherwise, you have inflammations that go on chronically in knees and joints. We call it arthritis, or in the brain, we call it Alzheimer's. I mean, these inflammations go on, and they do damage over time that you can't recover from. And we knew if the body could self-heal better, as we get older, you know, a lot of people don't get enough healing, good deep sleep to heal, that we could help people live longer. We knew we could measure brain state, and so we wanted to help people live longer and be healthier, but we've never run the brain. The brain runs us at its whim, but you can influence the brain by moving the brain state to be in the position to do the task that you have to do right then the best. It is uh, really sexy stuff. And so it's obviously, this makes me feel very, very good. I'm very excited about it. To be part of being able to bring something to the world that from my little area of what I endeavor hearing, I can bring something to the world that's really could help people function better. People think of Apple, Samsung as being really huge companies. The healthcare industry in the U.S. alone, not China, Europe, the rest of the world, in the U.S. alone is over $3 trillion. If we can help the body self-heal, we'll need less pharmaceuticals, less doctors, less hospital time, and that productivity can be directed elsewhere. So we've been able to make a lot of progress, but there's a lot more to be made. There's still more that we can do. We're not out of ideas. We're not out of places to go, and we're gonna try to go there and get it done. So here we are. Now I'm in two sides of the world. We're doing things that will help people, so we will be good servants and be rewarded. And so I can do more work on the humanitarian side, and that brings true balance to my life. Because imagine this, you could take science and you can do anything you can dream of today. But here's what you can do with science. You can be so clever that you could kill people faster than you ever could before. 
So to keep people from not destroying their planet and each other, we need to continue to nurture them spiritually so they won't want to do that and they won't want to go there. And in the name of connectivity, we have become very disconnected. People are looking at their cell phones and getting text messages, and they're not looking in the eyes and hearing the voice directly of people, unprocessed. If you go down south and someone says, y'all come back, you hear? They all say that when you leave because that's just polite. If you don't say that, you're not polite. But some people mean it because you're like a brother or sister to them and they'll miss you and they, they look forward to being with you again. And other people can't wait for you to get out of there and they just as soon never hear you, to, you see you again. We, the, the words are the same if you're texting it, but when you hear the voice, you know the difference. You know the difference right away. And people need to know that. They need to know that someone really does care about them. And they need to hear that in the voice, the human voice. And so we, we want to keep working on what Mother Teresa said, the greatest poverty is spiritual poverty. We can't let that happen in our world if we want our world to truly be better for our great-grandchildren. We can't rely on it being better by science alone because science can be used both ways, good or bad. And so you have to bring up, you have to bring up the other side. And great job as always to Alex Cortez and thanks to Robbie for the production. And thanks to Bill Austin for all he does, proving that men of science, well, they have spirit. And my goodness, his faith walk is a remarkable one, Bill Austin's. Moreover, that business and men of business can change the world. And all of the great innovation in health, well, it's all because of what private entrepreneurs do with their lives to make people's lives better in the end. And Bill Austin is the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, and you can learn more about their work and hearing aids at starkey.com. And that figure he threw out was stark and remarkable. $3 trillion a year are spent, well, all of it spent uh, trying to make our lives better. And with this one device, he's of the deep belief, and he can prove it, that people can, well, take fewer drugs, they can visit hospitals less frequently, and need less doctor visits as well. And this is just a matter of living better, and making better choices and having the data to do it and the devices to do it. And again, we've spent a lot of time with the Stetson family office on better health at lower costs. And my goodness, this is practically a feature for that series. Bill Austin's story, the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love telling father-son stories here on our show, the good and the bad, by the way. Today we have Reverend Justin McGuire sharing his story, and we love to tell stories from towns all over this country, from affiliates all around the country. And today this one comes from right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and we're about 60 miles dead south of Memphis. And Justin lives here with his wife, Missy, and five kids. Here's his story. I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, 40 years ago now. Um, And my parents divorced when I was 23 months old. So I don't have any childhood memories of my dad at all. Um, From my earliest memories, it was just me and my mom. Dad was never in the picture. What I later learned was that my dad had a history of alcohol abuse, uh, substance abuse, that he um, had had affairs, also that he was uh, emotionally and verbally and physically abusive as well. As I got a little older, many of those allegations were substantiated by um, other adults in our family, other people who had known him. And again, that was that was just sort of what I was told about him, but again, I had no memory of him whatsoever. I remember once uh, playing at my grandparents' house, and there was a a photo album that I was just flipping through, and there were a lot of you know photos from my childhood, and even of my my mom's childhood, and I have an uncle, her brother, um, you know, their childhood, and things like that. And I came across some pictures of a baby laying on its back, being played with by a man, and I thought that I recognized myself as the baby. Uh, I did not recognize the man. And so I had to ask my grandmother, Grandma, is is this my dad? And she said, yeah, that's your dad. And so I, I can't remember specifically how old I was at that point, but certainly in, you know, single digits. But, you know, finally, uh, at least there having a, a face to put with my dad was, uh, I wouldn't say helpful, but it, you know, I guess satisfied some small level of curiosity. And I would still sometimes upon you know, subsequent visits to my grandparents' house, go seek out that photo album specifically just to flip through and kind of look back and see him. So um, my grandparents played a really integral role in my upbringing. My mom's dad, uh, so my my biological grandfather, um, was the father figure in my life growing up. They certainly didn't have, you know, like visitation in in any legal sense, but it seemed like in some sense they did because I spent so many weekends at their house growing up. So he was the guy with whom, you know, I'd play catch in the backyard and uh, who would do with me all of the things that, you know, a dad would typically have done. But again, growing up, it was just me and my mom. And so things, you know, progressed that way um, throughout my childhood on into college And then after graduating college and getting married, I learned from my grandmother that, unbeknownst to me, contact had actually been maintained between my dad's sister and and my grandmother. Like, she would check in from time to time, you know, just to kind of see how I was doing, if I was, you know, growing and developing normally and things like that. And that came as a complete shock to me. My, my assumption for my entire life had been that there was there was no contact whatsoever, not necessarily due to any animosity or anything like that, but just because, you know, that was the way that things had gone. So that was very surprising to learn. Um, 
what was more surprising was maybe six weeks after learning that, I got a call from my grandmother saying that she had again been in contact with my dad's sister and that my dad had been diagnosed with lung cancer and that he had only been given a few weeks to live and that he had asked to see me. And uh, that was something of a shock. Um, The good news was that uh, I had become a Christian maybe three years prior to that. And so my response to that news at that point as, as a Christian believer was decidedly different than it would have been otherwise. You know, most of my childhood and upbringing, I harbored a great deal of resentment toward my dad and would in probably, you know, predictable teenage bravado kind of ways would say things, man, if I ever see him, you know, I'll knock him out. You know, I can't, I just kind of hated him. I, I looked around and I, I saw what most of my friends had in their dads, you know, at a very early age, realized that I did not have that and just lamented the loss of that presence in my life. But having come to faith in Christ, um, I was grateful that I was going to have the opportunity, it seemed, to to meet him and interact with him. And so if memory serves, we got that phone call on a Tuesday. Uh, we made plans to go down the following Sunday. He was in a hospital in Savannah, Georgia. We were living in Columbia, South Carolina at the time, and so Savannah's probably four or five hours south of where we were. Um, We went and purchased a Bible. We had his name inscribed on it. Uh, We gathered some CDs of some sermons that had been kind of meaningful to us uh, in the hopes that, you know, if he was not a believer, that he would read the Bible, maybe listen to some sermons, uh, perhaps come to faith in Jesus. And... um, and just prayed a lot uh, from that Tuesday until the Sunday when we departed to go down there. So we drove down there. We got to the hospital. Um, one somewhat disconcerting thing to learn upon our arrival there <laughs> was that he had actually not asked to see me. Um, that was a, a ploy really on his sister's part, very well-meaning on her part. Um, she did not want him to die without having at least seen or met me, and, and perhaps, I suppose, for him to have some kind of closure or some, you know, some way to address, you know, what he had done to me. I, I don't know if she wanted him to, you know, seek forgiveness or, you know, really what her exact motivation was. But we had driven all that way down there. We were there, and it was kind of, well, I'm, we're going to see him anyway. Um, and so I got on the elevator, you know, was, went with her, um, got shown to my father's hospital room and he was, uh, laying in his hospital bed and, um, met him for the first time in my memory. You know, I had never, um, met or heard his voice or interacted with him. There had never been any letters exchanged, no phone calls. There was zero contact. Uh, over the years. And so um, I was 23. This would have been the summer of 2004. Um, And so, you know, I remember uh, sitting on, uh, he sat up in his bed and was able to sit on the edge of his bed. I remember sitting beside him. We embraced, we hugged. Um, Wept a lot. Then, for sure, it still um, 
obviously somewhat emotional to think through now, but it was unique to get to hug the man from whom you should have been getting hugs for 23 years. And um, I don't remember a ton of the details of the conversation. I I do remember um, very clearly being able to express to him that I forgave him um, for his absence. Uh, And he asked me if, if I would like to go on a walk with him like, would you like to go on a walk? And I, you know, I didn't even know that that was possible given the machines to which he was attached and everything. Um, I said, well, yeah, absolutely. And even in, even in the moment, it, it somewhat struck me uh, how many, um, what I would have given to have been able to just go on walks with my dad um, growing up. And you've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire. He lives here in our hometown of Oxford, Mississippi. That's where we broadcast about an hour south of Memphis. And when we come back, we'll continue the story of Justin McGuire, his father-son's story, here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and we've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire share his father-son story and by the way send your stories your family stories mother father to ouramericannetwork.org there are some of our best and my goodness we've all got one sometimes a good dad and in this case just a completely absent dad he had never met his dad by the way until one day at the age of 23 got that call that his dad was sick and he went to go see him in the hospital When he got there, Justin's dad asked him to go on a walk with him. Let's get back to the story. They detached him from, you know, his machines. He had to, you know, had to wheel the little IV thing with him uh, outside. But I got on the elevator, went downstairs, went outside. It was this glorious, I mean, it couldn't have been a more picturesque spring day in Savannah, Georgia. Um, You know, the Spanish moss and the trees and azaleas. It was just glorious. And so we went and sat at one of those concrete picnic tables and, you know, engaged um, in some small talk. But given what I knew about his condition and the very limited time uh, that he had, I intentionally directed the conversation toward more, you know, eternal matters. And I just asked him if he was, if he was certain of where he was going to go, you know, when his life did indeed come to an end. And um, sadly from, from my perspective uh, and from a Christian perspective, he had embraced some beliefs that had been communicated to him very well-meaning but biblically misguided. And so, thankfully, I was able to talk through some of that with him. Um, He asked some questions, and we were able to have a really kind of clarifying uh, conversation about those things at the conclusion of which um, he prayed to receive Christ. 
as his Lord and Savior. And so, <laughs> I mean, as if things couldn't have gotten more surreal, there there was that. And so he gave every indication that he, he understood the gospel, um, that he believed it, and that he believed it for himself. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, it was clear that he was physically weakening, you know, a little bit. And so we we went back and um, visited for a little while longer at that point with Missy. She came into the room, and um, his sister, um, my mom, actually came in, which was really interesting as well. You know, they're, uh, they embraced um, neither one of them expressing any, you know, ill will toward the other or anything like that. So that was that was kind of neat to see also. And uh, and we ended up leaving. We went to lunch with his sister, his brother, uh, who was married, uh, his sister's single. Something that I learned that I think explained a good bit to me about why my dad ended up being the way that he was, was that he was the baby of their family. If I remember correctly, I think those were the only three siblings. He had the older brother and sister. He was the baby. When he was two their dad died. Um, and I can't remember the cause, but obviously unexpected in their recollection from the get go, he was, uh, the, the black sheep slash the rebel, you know, of the family, um, you know, engaged in all kinds of illicit behavior that they never approved of. And, And so there was this really interesting contrast between the way that he had lived his life and the way that they had lived theirs. Um, and that upon reflection, helping me, just to appreciate even more deeply um, God's grace in my life uh, to keep me from going down similar paths. Um, so we wrapped that up. I, I would say we probably spent uh, five or six hours in Savannah. We came back and had uh, planned to go back down the following Sunday for a similar sort of visit. And in the meantime, I had several phone conversations with my dad during the week. He uh, He had begun reading his Bible. He had listened to those sermons. You know, every indication that I got from the conversations that we had was that he was engaged uh, spiritually. Um, And uh, sadly, but in in God's providence on that Sunday morning, as we were still in bed, just getting ready to get up and get going for the day, his sister called to tell us that he had passed away during the night. Um, So within a few weeks, they had his his funeral. I got to speak uh, at his graveside. Uh, very briefly, um, that's where um, things left off, and it's it's been interesting to continue to reflect on um, in the years since then, just the, the way that I spent all of my childhood and my early adulthood, you know, not necessarily wondering why I didn't have a dad, but there are, there being no no good reason, you know, for that as far as I was concerned. And everything that that I missed out on um, from a dad's presence in my life, but then to reflect on the the gospel hope that I now have, that despite not having him in this life, I'll have an eternity with him. And uh, that's, that's, that's a remarkable and very um, happy thought. So becoming a father has definitely at different points forced reflection on my dad's absence in my life in a number of ways. Um, there, there have been different points in my children's lives when they've reached the age 
that I was when my dad left. And at those points, I, I've just been struck with the a sense of incredulity that you could leave at that point. Because while I was still young enough that I had no conscious memory of him, a child at that age is totally engaged uh, with his or her dad, um, able to play, able to interact, even to some degree verbally. Um, and and I, it just struck me, how how could you do that? How could you leave uh, at that point? Um, on not countless but numerous occasions, um, the thought <laughs> the thought has crossed my mind very consciously. You know when. A kid says, "Hey, Dad, you know, can you can you go in the yard and play football with us?" And it, it's like, of course I can, you know, I, absolutely I will. Um, e- even within the last week, that's happened on more than one occasion. When again, the thought has just come back, man, what I would not have given, or what I would have given, uh, just to have a dad to throw a ball with something that simple, um, and that requires, frankly, so little. Uh, but but the the delight that that brings uh, to kids and and to, to my kids, um, yeah, it, it's definitely given me motivation. I would say on one hand, but but also just gratitude for the opportunity to be present in their lives. And, and I don't remember who said it or where we heard it, but Missy and I uh, both clearly remember hearing um, someone say something along the lines of, you know, kids don't grow up in Christian homes and leave the faith uh, because of how, you know, wrongly their parents did things. But the kids who, and and again, I'm not citing statistics or anything like this, but, you know, kids who end up growing up in the church and and end up leaving the faith are those who had parents who tried to act like they never did anything wrong. You know, it's not that they didn't do things wrong. It's that they did things wrong but refused to ever own it and wouldn't apologize and acknowledge. And so there's this this facade or a veneer of self-righteousness that gets communicated, like I'm getting everything right, and if you would just kind of get on board with my program, then everything would go swimmingly. Um, as opposed to parents who simply, in, in acknowledging sin to their kids, are just telling their kids what their kids already know. They know you screwed up. They know that you shouldn't have said that. They know that you should not have lost your temper that way. They know that you shouldn't have done whatever it is that you've done, and it actually presents a meaningful and really redemptive opportunity to communicate to your children, listen, um, yes, for this stage of your life, God has put me in your life as, as a guiding authority figure. Uh, but when it comes to our relationship with God, you and I are shoulder to shoulder. You know, we are side by side in that. And mommy and daddy need the gospel and we need God's grace every bit as badly as you do. And so both when you sin and when we sin, what we want to remind you of is the desperate need that we both have to look to Jesus for grace and for forgiveness. And so a part of that means going to the person against whom you sin and saying, listen, buddy, listen, you know, I'm sorry I said that. I responded way too strongly and daddy was wrong. Um, will you please forgive me? Having not had a father growing up deepened in me a desire for connection to a father and um, knowing the way that the scriptures 
repeat the nature of his relationship with us as of a father to his children. We long to hear that from our parents. I would even say, you know, having grown up without a father, specifically from a dad, for a dad to say, I love you and I'm proud of you and I approve of you and I'm pleased with you. I feel compelled at every biblically appropriate opportunity um, to remind God's people that that's the way that he views them and that's the way that he loves them. And that the more deeply they believe that, the more equipped and empowered they'll be uh, to live out their callings as his kids in the world. And you've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire and his father-son story. And again, this comes from our small town. And if you've got a father-son story, a, a mother-daughter story, any variation, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. When there's a faith element, as you can tell, we don't leave it out like so many other po- folks do. And when there isn't, well, we do it anyway. Um, Americans come in every possible variety and form to our airwaves, and we respect it all. And again, Reverend Justin McGuire telling it straight as he knows it about his own father and now his own duties as a father and as a, as a devoted person of God. His story, so many others like it across this great country, here on Our American Stories.